It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back, great save by Dimko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Thursday? We're going to make it better. That's what we do. Want you involved in the conversation as always. 960-960-650-650. I am Scott Rintoul. He is Jamie Dodd. How are you this morning, sir? Doing great, Scotty. Doing great. Excellent. I'm very glad to hear that. And we have NHL news <laughs> to report off the top of the show. No, I am. I'm sincere. I sincerely mean that. Jamie, I appreciate that. There's you. a lot of people not doing well right now, and that sort of ties into the NHL news that we have to report or relay more appropriately. You and I aren't necessarily reporters. We don't consider ourselves the newsbreakers. Everybody seems to associate us all together. That's not really what we do here. Elliot Friedman, he is that, and he has broken some news here this morning. And some of it pertains to the teams that we talk about a lot, and there are other NHL stories in here. Bill Daly, he's doing the media tour. Here's what Friedman has tweeted out. Partial capacity in Montreal and Vancouver. That won't come to us as a surprise, I should say, to anybody living in BC, and I don't imagine it will be a surprise to anybody in Quebec. Partial capacity. The Vancouver Canucks don't open until October 26th. Could the situation change? Yes. Is this what I was expecting to start the season for the Vancouver Canucks? Also, yes. You? Yes, exactly. Not a big surprise. Credit to Friedman for getting some sort of official word on it, but very much what the expectation has been going into the season for the Canucks. And partial can mean a lot of different things. 50%, 70%, 90%. We'll wait and see where British Columbia in particular is at, as our listenership is interested in that, when we get to the late stages of October. Awaiting guidance in Ontario. Take that as you will. You can use that as an overarching theme for the last 18 months if you want. That kind of has been the situation. I'm not surprised that that's the case in in Ontario. They're dealing with some things in schools right now as far as COVID goes. This is down the food chain for them. We'll wait and see. Full capacity in Alberta and Manitoba. That's only somewhat of a surprise right now. And part of that has to do with the announcement we heard in Alberta yesterday. Jamie, there was a lot of backpedaling trying to be done. Was it an apology? Was it an admission? Eh, might depend where your political leanings lie. We obviously know that there are tougher restrictions all of a sudden in Alberta. Look, there's no dunking to be done here. I know people take it down that political road. I feel bad for the people of Alberta right now. I really do. The hospital situations are stressed. Things are not very good in that province. You have friends there. I have friends. I have family there as well. Our hearts go out to the people that are struggling with this right now. This is a tough turn. It's tough. It's I've seen a lot of frustration online and in talking to different people. It's and I understand completely why. It's also why of this kind of, you know, tour through the provinces with NHL teams in Canada, the full capacity in Alberta note from Friedman that he's relaying from Bill Daly, that seems like the most likely one to change, right? Because that could have been something they communicated to the NHL earlier this week, but based on what we heard out of Alberta and heard out of the government in Alberta yesterday, it seems like there's at least a decent chance that that changes and it goes down to partial capacity by the time the Flames and the Oilers are opening up. No guarantee, it's just that's kind of the direction things are pointing right now. Maybe. I also feel like the way that things are being handled right now 
and people will have their opinions on this, but the way things are being handled is, yeah, it's full capacity as long as you can provide a vaccine passport yep. or a negative test within the last 24 to 48 hours, wherever we are at that point in time. Full capacity under those provisions. I could see that still being in effect next month. 100%. That's a possibility for sure. There's no doubt about it. I just think, again, of the ones that could like change status from what we've seen now, I would look Alberta at Alberta. But you're right. If, if, if they could easily say, you know what, we have the double vax mandate, so we're going to roll with full capacity still. So that's where we are as far as attendance at arenas right now across Canada. And as we just both mentioned, that can change. This is a fluid situation. Here's something that applies to everybody around the National Hockey League. The cap is expected to go up just a bit next season, but just a bit can mean a lot of things for a lot of different teams. A million bucks doesn't sound like much, Jamie, but when you're trying to get an RFA done, you're trying to get a UFA contract signed, you've got an extra million dollars to play with, and you say, okay, this is a sign of things to come. Those revenues are only going to increase as we come out of this pandemic. That is certainly good news from a financial standpoint for the National Hockey League. Well, especially because we had heard at different points during the pandemic, you know, there could be no movement in the cap for four, five seasons, right? And we did see Frank Saravelli report earlier in the summer that, okay, we could see this kind of gradual $1 million per season increase for several years instead. So good to have confirmation of that. I think it points, obviously, in the right direction for the financial health of the sport. And yeah, it's only a million dollars, but... I mean, you don't think the Canucks would like to have an extra million dollars of cap space right now to sign Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes? It would make things a lot easier for them. So only a million dollars, but that million dollars can go a long way. The last couple of notes from Friedman here, they're specific to certain teams. One, Evander Kane. Friedman says the report on Evander Kane's situation is expected before the opening of training camp, which is in a week's time. So something's yep. coming down the pike pretty quick here. And Evander Kane, we're hoping to have audio later today. He is speaking with, or he has spoken with, I should say, ESPN's Linda Cohn. That interview is going to air in approximately an hour and a half on ESPN. We're going to try to get that audio for you before the end of the show. Anything that's pertinent, we will work it in. The other is this. The investigation continues into Chicago. Friedman adds, no timeline on that. My fear all along has been that... There wouldn't be enough accountability, and this would just fade into the woodwork. But I think the reporters close to that situation appear to be doing a strong enough job asking about it. And I don't think that's going to change. I know that there will be people getting caught up with the opening of the season and, and the Blackhawks opponent for this week and what this series this coming weekend means. I do think there's enough accountability there in, in that market and with some national reporters that they're going to continue to press on this. Yeah, I hope so, because it is disappointing to hear, you know, oh, investigation continues, no timeline. It's It brings up the concern that you raise, right, that it's going to be swept under the rug, that it's going to fall off the radar. As you pointed out several times, right, like what about the Bill Peters investigation? We're, I believe we're still waiting for a resolution on that from the NHL, and that's going back a long ways at this point. So hopefully that doesn't happen. You're right. I mean, the reporter who's been most closely associated with this, Rick Westhead, it doesn't seem like he's going to give up the story anytime soon. I know there are people on the ground in Chicago doing really good work on it as well. So I hope that pressure and that heat is enough to prevent the NHL from kind of just dragging their feet until everyone forgets about it. You're right with the Bill Peters situation. And I will continue to raise that point every yep. once in a while. How come we don't have a finding into that? feels like unless you're waiting for a hot tub time machine that one should be done by now it's almost two years ago that's almost two years ago now scotty that that situation developed right and that's we haven't heard anything and 
people aren't asking about it anymore. And I understand why. You know, you only have so much time with Bill Daly or Gary Bettman when you do get to ask them questions. There's a lot to get into, but that's exactly what the concern is with the Chicago situation, right? That time just goes by, other things creep up, other things take on more importance, and you kind of stop paying attention to it. Flames did an investigation. They seemed to arrive at a conclusion pretty quickly, and they made their move with Bill Peters. I'm not sure why the NHL, with all of its resources, has taken this long. As mentioned, it feels like it's just going to fade into the woodwork and Bill Peters will coach somewhere else and eventually enough time will pass and maybe his name comes up again if somebody asks about him in coaching circles in the National Hockey League and it gets addressed at that time. But that's where it feels like it is at right now. The other news that came out today, and it doesn't apply to these markets, and I think a lot of people go, oh, okay, whatever. Toronto and Buffalo, they're going to play a Heritage Classic game. It's going to be in Hamilton, which back at Mission Control is massive <laughs> news. The the good times continue for Greg Ballack, the Hamilton native who has the Grey Cup coming there in December, and now the Heritage Classic between the Leafs and the Buffalo Sabres. Wow. But outside of that, I don't think there's a ton of interest here. Hamilton's booming. <laughs> Hamilton's booming. It's, I was just saying, it's Hamilton's time to shine, man. Wow. What a few months it's going to be for Hamilton. Not, not normally in the spotlight, but yeah, I don't know. Whatever. It's another outdoor game. It's between one team we think is going to be pretty good and one team we think is going to be terrible. Eh, okay. Whatever. Fair enough. It'll be nice for the fans there i'm sure there's a lot of sabers fans in hamilton if i can speak from experience because it's about halfway between toronto and buffalo and it's actually easier and cheaper to get sabers tickets from hamilton so it's going to be big mass audiences don't really tune into this for a television product anymore i don't think it's going to look quite the same jamie i've been to hamilton and i like the stadium and i think it's going to be great for the great cup there and i hope this event goes off well it's not going to look quite the same as the event last year at lake tahoe no, it's no, <laughs> no, that's not no. not scenic Hamilton. No, I don't think so. And instead of the mountains in the background, it will be smokestacks puking yep. out smoke. But I digress. That's the NHL news. So we we gave you the NHL news of the day. Thursday means the start of the National Football League for a next week. And that means week two. And it's not a terribly appetizing game like we could have that today. What what are you more interested in? the New York Giants and Washington football team or the Heritage Classic between the Sabres yes. and the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I'm not sure how people would vote in that scenario. So other than fantasy purposes tonight, or if you happen to be one of the diehards of those two teams, there's not a crazy amount of interest in this game tonight, but it's the National Football League, Jamie. So here's what I know. People are going to yep. watch. And you know what? I, I can imagine worse matchups, right? It's a divisional game. You feel like because this division isn't great, both teams could still, you know, find a way into contention for a playoff spot. I can talk myself into this one. Let's put it that way, Scotty. I know I have to do some work to get excited for it, but I'm willing to talk myself into it. Hey, most people will do the exact same thing, and this is going to raise another topic later in the show that a listener brought up and you and I are going to get into a little bit later on in the program today, and the NFL certainly falls on one side of the conversation. That's a little bit of a tease as to what's to come. I'm not sure which worst matchups you can imagine. They probably involve the Detroit Lions, maybe the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Houston yep. Texans, but that's probably the ballpark in which we're swinging. So, yeah, I'm going to watch. You're going to watch. People will still end up watching. There's a good story out today because Taylor Henneke's going to start tonight for the Washington football team. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he got hurt last week. Hip subluxation, he is out. Here comes Taylor Haneke, who has started games for this team before. He started last year. He started the playoffs for them last year, Jamie. Yeah, no, he's he's been a 
not a fixture, but not a completely unfamiliar sight for Washington fans to see Haneke under center for them. But it's an indication of what Washington has gone through with its quarterbacks for the bulk of the past three decades. So the story that's out today is since Mark Rippon, who won a Super Bowl with Washington back in 1991, since he left the lineup in week two, got injured for Washington, and this is back in 1993. Since that time, there have been 31 starting quarterbacks, including Ryan Fitzpatrick last week, who have suited up for the Washington football team. Now, Washington hasn't landed in this spot as much as Cleveland has. We've talked about Cleveland forever until Baker Mayfield, who seems like the guy now, and we can debate where he falls in in the NFL hierarchy of starting quarterbacks, but they've got their guy. They've got a guy they feel good about for the first time in a long time in Cleveland. Washington, when you start to look back and you look at the 31 guys who have started games for them, and maybe we take Fitzpatrick out of the mix because he didn't even complete his first, but there are 30 different quarterbacks in there if we take him out of the mix who have played at least a full game, sometimes a bunch, and for one reason or another, Jamie, they haven't lasted. In fact, when you go through the 30 quarterbacks, and we don't need to go through them all here, consider this. There is a very good case to be made that the best quarterback to see suitable or a noticeable amount of time, a decent amount of time in a Washington uniform over the last 28 years is Kirk Cousins. Yep, that's the high watermark, really. I mean, not necessarily in terms of peak performance, right? Because you could go to RG3's rookie season for that. But in terms of total performance in his time under center for Washington, last 30 years probably doesn't get better than Kirk Cousins. Right, and there are better quarterbacks who have been in Washington who have better careers than either of those players. I think of a guy like Brad Johnson, who after he left Washington, he would go on to win a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But again, Brad Johnson's kind of an indicator here about what they've been served up. Kind of an okay quarterback, game managers many times. RG3, you're right, from an excitement standpoint and the pinnacle of what he did, he was sensational, but... Washington wrecked him. His knee, he was never the same guy after that rookie winning campaign back in 2012. And for injury's sake or because they fell out of favor or it just was the wrong time in their career or maybe they didn't have the right coach or resources around them, one reason or another, none of these guys has been able to be a stable quarterback for the Washington football team. And you're right. They've had decent names, guys with good careers, just at the wrong part of their career, right? Either too early or way too late. Like, remember, Donovan McNabb was the starter there for a year late in his career, right? Donovan McNabb had a really great career, but just didn't do anything. He was he was too old, didn't couldn't perform by the time he was with Washington. You know, Mark Brunel had a lot of good years in the NFL, but by the time he got to Washington... Eh, wasn't really at that level anymore. So there's names on the list when you go through it that you think, oh, yeah, that guy was pretty good, but it just never worked in Washington for a variety of reasons. Consider this. The author who ch- who churned out this piece has Colt McCoy in the top ten. <laughs> Consider that. Like Colt McCoy, nice story at Texas. He was a good college quarterback. People thought he might do something in the NFL. But Colt McCoy's in your top ten in the last 28 years. What does that tell you, Jamie? Yeah, and he's he started 12 games for them and threw eight touchdowns. And that's a, and that has been judged to be a top 10 starting quarterback performance for Washington in this time frame. Like that's crazy. Eight touchdowns. Eight touchdowns in 12 games. Like, well, that's pretty good compared to everything else. 
So it brings up this conversation. This is where we want you to jump in because we don't feel like you have to have infinite knowledge of the Washington football team and their quarterbacking situation to participate here. Let's take this to other sports. You can take it to the NFL if you want. You can take it to the National Hockey League. Those franchises that just can't seem to find that guy at that position. And when you frame it that way, Jamie, there's some easy ones around the National Hockey League, and a couple of them, quite frankly, are pretty close to home. In Philadelphia, they were looking for a goaltender forever yep. after Ron Hextall. They think they've found one, and now people are maybe not as convicted as they were two years ago on Carter Hart. I think, by and large, Flyers fans think, okay, that was a blip on the radar. He's going to be fine. Hopefully he gets along with the head coach this season. But that's one that jumps out immediately from the National Hockey League. The Philadelphia Flyers trying to find a goalie. Well, and even with Philly and Carter Hart, you know, because of that history of the franchise, the dip that we saw from Carter Hart, I think it hits Philly fans even harder than it would for a lot of other teams, right? Because they had so much excitement. Oh my goodness, we finally found our goalie. It's been so long. We've never been able to find one. We got this guy. And then, uh uh-oh, uh-oh, here we go again. The wheels are falling off. Wait, no, we're back to the goalie graveyard. We're back to just endlessly cycling through, guys. I think a lot of Philly fans have gone through that process because they have the history of futility in the crease. Vancouver jumps out because what has Vancouver been seeking for its entire existence? A number one defenseman. And it's part of the reason everybody's so excited about Quinn Hughes because many believe that's what he's going to be. But he's only two years into his career, and you've already had people make make their definitive statement, like this is the best defenseman we've ever had. He's the best defenseman Vancouver's ever had, and he's going to be the best ever, and there are still a lot of elements of his game that need improvement. I think people would admit defensively Quinn Hughes took a step back last season. They believe the potential exists for him to be a lot better in years to come, but Vancouver's been looking for that guy in the blue line forever. And it's fair with, with Quinn Hughes. It's, you know, look, as you said, there's a lot of part of his games that need that still need developing, but if you want to say he's the most talented defenseman the Canucks have ever had, it's kind of hard to argue with that because they've never had that true number one, really dynamic, all-around defenseman since they've been in the NHL. So it remains to be seen, you know, will his career be better than Alex Edler, Matias Oland, whoever you want to put in that conversation. But the talent and the upside, I think, clearly the best the Canucks have ever had on the blue line. We speak to another market on a daily basis, and I imagine these texts are going to start to come into 960-960 or 650-650. You can find us at either place throughout the course of the show. A number one center in Calgary. They're looking for it right now. We know that. We've chronicled that story as far as the present goes, but go back over time. Where's the number one center in Calgary that jumps out and goes, oh, yeah, that guy unequivocally, he was a top center, and that's it's been a really long time for the Calgary Flames. It's been forever. I mean, that was a massive talking point for Jerome McGinley's career in Calgary, right? When are they going to find a legit number one center to play with Iggy? Like Craig Conroy, great player, really nice, not a number one center. Look what McGinley's doing, even without having that to play play with. When are they actually going to go get one for him? They were never able to do it, and they still haven't been able to do it. It still dominates the conversation about the Calgary Flames. When are they going to get that true number one center? And I think not just when you look at the roster now, but because of that history of the franchise, Scotty, that's why I think you and I and a lot of other people thought they would do pretty much whatever it takes to go get Jack Eichel because they have been so incredibly desperate for that type of player for decades now. 
We have someone else unsigned texting in Habs in a number one center. Yeah, it's been forever, and they hope they have that in Nick Suzuki, and there's many people who believe they do, and they looked at how he performed in the playoffs, but he still has to grow a little bit into that role. Yep, absolutely. He does have to grow into that role. That's a good one. We also have somebody, 960-960, saying uh, the Flames trying to find a legitimate number one goalie since Kipper left. Now they have Markstrom, but it took a while, and there was definitely that kind of interim period where they were cycling through guys at a pretty high rate. I do, I do find it interesting because for a long time in there, or at least for you know maybe post-Kirk McLean, there was a time where the Vancouver Canucks were looked at uh, as a goalie graveyard. And that's completely flipped, really, since Roberto Luongo got to town. Since then, they've had a pretty impressive succession of goalies, and it looks to be continuing now with Thatcher Demko. So I guess there, there's hope for these franchises, right? Like, you can change your luck at these positions and all of a sudden turn it into a strength. Well, and with all due respect to the Calgary Flames and their search for a goaltender, relative to some of the other teams we're talking about, it hasn't been that long. No. It's easy to forget that Mika Kiprostov was still playing in the National Hockey League within the last decade. We're talking about yep. situations that have gone on for 20, 30 years, depending on what franchise we're talking about here. I know that one season can feel like an eternity in the National Hockey League, but it hasn't been that long. And you're right about Jacob Markstrom, and they feel like they've got their cornerstone in that position moving forward. Like you look at a team like the New York Jets looking for a quarterback. Like they've been looking for a quarterback since Joe Namath. I know people are going to bring up a couple other names in here, but... When we're talking about stability for a long time, Ken O'Brien jumps to mind. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Vinny Testaverde, Vinny Testaverde and Chad, yeah, Chad yeah. Pennington. Like, these are the types of names we're throwing out there, and, and that spin cycle continues. They drafted Sam Darnold. Well, I guess it's not him. Now they're hoping it's Zach Wilson. But there's a franchise, for example, that's going through this forever. Well, the Chicago Bears, Scotty, like since World War II. Like, literally, no exaggeration since World War II. They've basically been trying to find a legitimate high-end starting quarterback in the NFL, and they have not been able to do it. Keep those texts coming in. Number one goalie in Toronto, says someone. Yep, that's fair. That's fair. The Leafs have been looking for that guy for a while, haven't they? Yep. I like this one, actually. This is kind of like a predict the future on this topic text. Seattle and Vegas both need a number one center because Yanni Gordon Chandler Stevenson won't cut it going forward. Look, I'll, I'll leave Seattle out of this, but it is interesting how quickly that narrative has developed with Vegas. And I know that they've said, look, it's more of a conversation for you guys. We like our centers here. But still, I wonder how long that is going to persist with Vegas before they're able to land that true number one center. It's interesting that, that you know, they're still such a young franchise, but they have already developed that narrative around a position on their team. Well, here's the hard part with that conversation. It's, hey, they've had four seasons. They're going on their fifth here. We got to give them a little bit of leeway. You get a little bit of time to try yeah. to find that guy. They had him. If Nick Suzuki turns into that for Montreal, they had the guy, and they traded yep. him away whether it's because Montreal liked that player better or because Vegas was betting on Cody Glass, who they have since flipped as well. Yeah, they had the guy. They drafted the guy, at least potentially, and now he's not part of your organization. And just want to amend what I said. Someone texted in, number one goalie in Toronto. That's only partially fair. Freddie Anderson was pretty good for them. Now, he didn't get it done in the playoffs, but nor did the rest of the team. Freddie Anderson was pretty good for them for a stretch here. 
He was, but I feel like it was a short enough stretch that it doesn't feel like, I mean, I don't know. I guess he was there for like five seasons, so it's tough. It's it's interesting because the way it ended and and what they did in the playoffs, it makes it feel like it was a failure, but he had some really good years for the Maple Regu- Yeah, regular season-wise, yeah. it's... I mean, he was a top ten goalie for a while, and we can. Yeah. There, there were some that wanted to put him in top five. I would say top ten, but we can leave that to our listeners. Well, keep those coming in. Those franchises that are looking for that one position haven't been able to find it. Maybe they hope that they have it now. Keep those coming in. Like Tyron Shane is a Browns fan. He says they haven't had a quarterback since Bernie Kosar. Hoping Baker Mayfield changes that around. They feel a lot better about Baker Mayfield than they felt about anything else for a really long time in Cleveland. I'll put it there. Yes, they absolutely do. I like this one from Minor Matt. Uh, the New York Knicks and ownership. Yeah, that's been a problem. <laughs> yeah. That has been a problem for a while uh, at Madison Square Garden with the Knicks. Johnny Vancouver, our ardent Leafs fan, says, Joseph, Belfour, Freddie, goalie hasn't been the least issue. Sure, those weren't Marty Berdur, but not a real liability. Yeah, they've had some good ones in Toronto. It's not as bad as some of the other situations. Keep those coming in, 960, 960, 650, 650. We're going to talk some more puck next. Part of TNT's new broadcast team and friend of the program, Darren Pang, joins us next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Darren Pang set to join us here momentarily. It's Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd. Lots of texts coming in. Good conversation. We expect that from you. 969-60-650-650. And get us throughout the course of the show. We're talking about Freddie Anderson, whether or not he's a number one goalie. I don't think anyone was saying, hey, he's the elite of the elite. And there is a difference here, Jamie. It's, hey, we've got a stable yeah. number one goalie, which I consider Frederick Anderson. Someone texted in saying, Freddie Anderson, okay, but I would argue that Matthias Oland in his prime was just as much a number one D-man as Anderson was a number one goalie. I disagree on that, even though I think Matthias Oland was a very good defenseman for a long time in the National Hockey League. He was a horse, played the game in a really tough manner as well, logged a lot of big minutes. Freddie Anderson has received Vesna votes in the past, and that doesn't mean he's your Vesna winner, but... When Freddie Anderson was at his best, and we'll see where he's at injury-wise, and we'll see what he does in Carolina, but when he was at his best, no one would have argued, wow, that's not a number one goalie. No, exactly. Everyone was unanimous on that point. As you said, got Vesna votes. People would have put him in the top ten in the league, that kind of conversation, and it wasn't a long stretch necessarily, and I don't know know if you would have bumped him into the category of elite, but clear-cut, solid, reliable number one goalie in the NHL. Canucks have never had a true number one right-handed defenseman. Well, now we're starting to split hairs a little yeah. bit. I don't think it really matters what side of the ice. You know, like in Calgary, if they finally get the number one center, I don't think they're going to say, well, "Yeah, but he's no. left-handed." I, it's I don't a little think different. They're cry about it. No, it's a little different when we're talking about defense pairings. I understand, but this is the conversation. This is the conversation that we're going through right now. Keep it coming. It's based on the Washington football team and the instability at quarterback, and we're looking at some of the other teams around pro sports that have been searching for that elusive player, and the fan base knows it. Like, Hopefully this is going to be the guy. And here's the other part that we forget about, Jamie, is that when a fan base craves that so much, there is so much pressure on the player who arrives that is hopefully that. Like in New York with the quarterbacking situation, it's crazy when it comes to the Jets. 
And especially at the quarterback position, right? Because it is so integral to every football team. And when you've been through the list of just guys who just completely didn't work out, like in Cleveland or, you know, Buffalo was like this for a while as well. The Jets, whichever team you want to pick, you're right. When Whenever they do land on the new hope, the new big thing that they hope is going to be the new big thing, the pressure is just immense. Minor Matt says the Denver Broncos at quarterback. Manning was a proven commodity at the end of his career, so I don't consider him their savior. No, but when you've won a Super Bowl as recently as 2016, I guess 2015 is the season we're talking about here, you can wait. You can wait. Like, that's been tied to John Elway. Peyton Manning came to Denver, and though he wasn't there for a very long time, he delivered two of the most prolific quarterbacking seasons we've ever seen individually in his first couple of years. And then by the end, when his health let him down, he still delivered them a Super Bowl. Yeah, it it does look like a blip. I understand what minor Matt is saying, but it's still a blip that resulted in a Super Bowl championship, right? So it's it's hard to feel too bad for the Denver Broncos at quarterback. Yeah, it's kind of like the Kawhi Leonard situation. He was only there yeah, for a year, exactly. but what he did in a year, it's pretty good, so you're going to live with it. Keep those texts coming in, 960-960 or 650-650. Our pleasure to hook up with in advance of the season for the first time, a guy we've had on many times, and now part of the TNT NHL crew. He is Darren Pang, former NHL goaltender. Panger, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? It is my pleasure, and uh, good to be talking some hockey again and, and getting back to uh... – I guess what we would call uh, normalcy uh, for the first time in, a, in at least a year and a half. So uh, I'm, I am excited about it, and I'm also really excited and honored to be part of the uh, uh, the new team at TNT uh, as a new partner with the NHL. So this, these are these are fun times, that's for sure. Yeah, rookie camp's open today, and though you're not a rookie, you've got a new network to work with, and you've worked for a bunch of different ones over your career, Darren. What excites you about the crew that's been assembled at TNT? Um, I think the most exciting part is the the way that they generate a family atmosphere. Um, when I when I signed the deal, and it's not that I know Charles Barkley really well, but I have played in a few golf tournaments with him, and I you know so I know him enough that I do have his number, and he's got my number. But to get a FaceTime from Charles Barkley saying "Welcome to the team, little fella," uh, that that excites <laughs> um, very very much. So um, um, so that's number one. Um, and then I went to Atlanta. Um, I helped them audition the four hosts and, and an analyst. And while I was there, Ernie Johnson came up and, and he just couldn't have been any nicer. And I know he's a, a, a just a terrific human being. Um, and then I, they, 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 they had the kindness to put me in Shaq's green room. So I tried on Shaq's uh, shoes and suit and I was just having the time of my life. And, you know, when I, when I left there at, at, at TNT, I, I just kind of left it saying, now this is what I want to, if I'm ending my career, which, you know, I, I, I know that that's, that's not now, but if, if I were, and, and, and I was going to work two more years in broadcast, and I want to I have fun. I, I want to, you know, I, I, I want to go to the rink no matter who I'm working with and know that it's going to be a fun show. And, uh, and so that's what I'm, I'm really, I'm excited about that. I mean, obviously, another part of it is, is with Wayne. Um, you know, Wayne Gretzky was really influential in me making my decision in going over to TNT after I'd had several talks with ESPN. So, um, you know, um, it was sad because I thought maybe I'd be working with uh, Ray Ferraro and Bucci and guys that I've known for a long time in the company that I started my career with. Uh, but I, I really think this is a really good fit for me in a smaller group and a smaller part of the season. And I can still do some St. Louis Blues games based out of St. Louis uh, without being, you know, without being 
too busy because that's that's kind of silly to be overly busy. We've worked this hard all our lives. I, I, I want to have some fun along the way here. Wayne Gretzky's been a friend of yours for a lot of years. What was it about working with him that swung you to the TNT side of things? Well, I, well, number you know, number one, I you know, working with Wayne for four years with the Coyotes, we did uh, we did a coach's corner show before every game. Uh, we played a lot of golf together. We went out for a lot of dinners, and and I and uh, as I told TNT when I when I did several Zoom calls with them, I, I said I I think you know a guy like me that's won um, a whopping 27 games, you know, I can poke fun at Wayne. I, I, I have a lot of fun with Gretz, and, but I like it because he challenges you because he knows the history of the game. And I love the history of the game. And when he says, uh, what are the best five rivalries that have in, in hockey forever? And he says, name them. And you name them. And he goes, no, I don't like that one. I want that one there. I like the Rangers and the Islanders, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I get excited about it because I know that he's got, we all know he's a, got a great hockey mind but i like it when he gets excited about talking about hockey so um when wayne said hey listen i would really like it if you if you you know if you have a chance to join us at tnt that would you know he said i i'd really like to have you beside me when i'm in that studio um, as much as possible um or just be part of the team so so that was great and then i found out that rick talk it was was in talk so i was you know i talked to rick a lot and I like the, I just like the chemistry of it. I, I like Keith Jones. We're good friends. Brendan Burke is a guy that's a real up and coming play by play guy. If you haven't heard him, he's he's the Islanders play by play voice, and he's very very good. He's got a great call, and so uh, all in all, I, I just really like the team. Well, we know how much they want to push the entertainment envelope as well, and you're a guy who like to ha- likes to have fun. I look forward to seeing you lying down for a nap in one of Shaq's shoes when we get to see that footage. That'll be great. That'll be fantastic, Panger. Like, they like to do things a little bit different, and I know they're going to try to do some things that haven't been done before with traditional hockey broadcasts. We just watched on Monday Night Football, for example, the Manning cast, and that got rave reviews online. It wasn't seen by the vast audience, but there was a segment of the population that said, that's awesome, I like the innovation. Could you see something like that or a derivative of that working in hockey? Yeah, that, that is interesting because the the Bleacher Report, while I was at the studios, I mean, they have a separate studio, too, for the Bleacher Report. Um, they've got what, you know, they're they're trying to, you know, take take all the talent that they've hired and, and say, okay, well, for right now, here's where we're going to place them all. But I think as, as as it evolves, they'll find out where everybody's, where they're good at. And, and, and some might not be as good in the studio as they think, and maybe there's another spot for them, and some might be better. Uh, in, 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 in certain spots. So um, can, can I see them do that? Yes, I can. Um, I can absolutely see it. I think, you know, Charles Barkley leads the charge over there. Um, but in my conversation with Rick Tockett, who's also a good friend of Charles Barkley, like I bet I'm on the phone with, with Talk now a couple of times a week. He's like, okay, we got to do this. We got to do that. I mean, this would be fun. This would be great. This is, you know, this is a good hockey talk. But but this would really change the way we're talking about hockey if we do it this way, you know. So um, I, I, I do believe because of Charles Barkley and the NBA show and even Major League Baseball, I mean, John Smoltz has won a ton of Emmy Awards or awards as well himself. And so they do a great job on the baseball side. But I, I really think that it's going to create competitiveness, um, not to be better than Charles Barkley, but, you know, to match up with what they're doing. And, uh, and so... So, yes, I can see them doing that. And I did watch the, the Manning brothers with my son-in-law uh, here in St. Louis, and I thought it was fantastic. I thought once they got warmed up after the first part that was a little stiff, 
then I really thought they were going and I, and I, I really was entertained by that. And so, um, I mean, I've worked for a lot of networks and starting in 1992 and I think everybody's tried to kind of change the way it's broadcast and, um, take something from a, a, a great broadcast and, and try to make it better. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think Turner's going to do that as well and, and, uh, do it without being, um, you know, kind of forced to do it. I think they just do it because I think that's what comes naturally to them. Well, and Darren, as you said, I mean, you've, you've worked for a lot of broadcasters, you know, you've worked for the NHL network, which is very high profile, but it, it does really feel like with the approach that Turner has the track record and the resources, I mean, they have a chance to really capture a new audience and grow the audience for the game uh, and for the NHL in the United States. And I imagine that must be a very exciting thing for you to be a part of, right? To feel like, hey, we're not just doing a broadcast. We're growing the game of hockey here. Yes. And, and you know, and everybody that's been a partner with the NHL, I mean, the, everybody's, you know, done their best to, to, to grow the game. And I remember doing games on ESPN2, um, and we, we, did, we did several seasons of of the rules edition of a game and i remember you know friends of mine in canada they were like what wait you you guys got to explain offside there or you got to explain what a two-line pass is you got to explain that and we're like hey we're just doing our best to grow the game exactly what you just said and um you know there's always going to be criticism fox took criticism for the glowing puck uh not traditional but you know what they probably they probably grew a lot of eyeballs and you know since those times we've seen a lot of video game kids become hockey players or rollerblade kids become hockey players in the NHL from California and Dallas and Arizona. And so everybody that's been a partner is doing a great job of helping grow the game. And I think Turner, what I like is it's a small group. Um, it's, it's a group that even on the executive side, um, it's not as big as ESPN. ESPN caters to sports, uh, TNT and Warner brothers. They don't, they have programming, they have highly rated programming and, and the hockey games will be around. So will we get, you know, a, a, a different audience because they've watched, uh, you know, one of the uh, detective shows before. I don't know. But I, all I know is when, when you turn it on and, and Wayne Gretzky's in the studio with, with Rick Tockett, I, I know Paul Bissonnette's there and Anson Carter. We're going to have a lot of guys that are going to be in that studio. Um, I, I think the eyeballs will change and, and they'll see the game a little bit differently. And um, the other part about it is, too, is that, with two different partners in the United States, I think that's good for hockey because I think if you just see the same people over and over and over and over and over, there's no, there's no reason for them to raise the bar because there's no competitiveness. Nobody's challenging you. And I, so I, I do believe that Turner's going to watch ESPN. ESPN's going to watch Turner. People are going to say what they think about both broadcasts and there'll be criticism and there'll be uh, a, you know, applause. But I, I think that's also good for the game. Darren, you mentioned, uh, obviously, you cover the St. Louis Blues most clo- most closely working on that broadcast. I wanted to ask you about St. Louis. You know, obviously, only a couple of years removed from that incredible Stanley Cup victory, but they haven't had the playoff success in the last couple of seasons. What do you expect to see from from the Blues going into this year? Yeah, I just came back from the rink, and I had a chance to talk to uh, to the Hall of Famer, Al McGinnis, and Steve Odd, and the you know coaching staff uh, were, were there Um I think they've got to get back to being a harder team to play against. And I think, you know, that's easier said than done. When they won the Stanley Cup, um, one thing in particular happened. Craig Berube put Jay Bomeister and Colton Pareko against every top line in the game. That allowed Alex Petrangelo some freedom and more offensive zone face-offs. And, 
you know, more time on that side of the puck instead of defending all the time. And I, I think, you know, obviously you lose Petrangelo and, and suddenly you lose Jay Bowmeister. Um, those are long sticks. Those are good defending players. Those are world-class players. And you replace them with good players, but not quite the same dimension defensively. So, what you know, I, I think what they, as a team, need to get back to is just being miserable to play against. And so that means that a uh, young kid like Nico Mikola, the Finn that's six foot five, uh, who's got a little bit of a nasty streak, you know, to play a little bit more, get Colton Pareko playing a little bit more on the defending side and being mean to play against. And, and, and other than that, the forward side of it, it looks like it's, it's taken good shape. The only question marks right now are what's going to happen with Vladdy Tarasenko, who I was just at the skate. There were seven guys on one part of the ice surface and the young kids that are going to Traverse City for the prospects were on the other uh, ice sheet. And, uh, you know, Vladdy's out there. He's skating every day. He's, you know, he's got to participate as if he's going to be a St. Louis Blue. But, you know, from now to the first game, uh, who knows? Maybe Doug Armstrong can have a, have a move uh, and, and make that trade that, that works for both teams. Otherwise, you're starting the season with Vladdy, who has said to everybody that he wants to be out. And that's never a comfortable situation to start the season in. Well, and I wanted to ask you about Tarasenko, Darren, because, you know, obviously the big offseason storyline there in St. Louis. And I, I just look at the roster. You know, they lost Jaden Schwartz to free agency to Seattle. He was another one of their, you know, big offensive contributors. Do they need to find a way to patch things over with Vladimir Tarasenko just to, to keep his dynamic talent in the lineup? Well, and, and to keep his value up. You know, that, that's another thing that's going to be a challenge for Craig Berube. Like, you know, you've got a player that says, I don't want to be here. Well, if the season starts and, and that player is not given 100%, well, that's tough on the coach. So the coach then says, okay, well, you're not going to be on the power play or you're not going to be on that, uh, you know, top six. Um, well, then you've got Doug Armstrong saying, hey, we got to play him more. Other teams are watching. They've got seven pro scouts here <laughs> looking to make a deal. So I think there, are, there is going to be some difficulties right there. But as it stands right now, I think the expectation is for Vladdy to, to get suited up and get ready to play. And if he really wants out of St. Louis, and wants to be on another team, then the best thing he can do is to go out there and score seven goals in the first ten games and tell everybody, I'm fine and I'm ready to go. Um, they also added Bushnevich. They, they added Brandon Saad. Um, so, you know, there is some change right there without Jaden Schwartz, which will be tough. I love that kid to death. I think he's, I think the world of Jaden Schwartz, I'm going to miss him, to be quite honest with you, um, as a person. And, and I know as a hockey player, because I love broadcasting when he's on the ice. So, uh, but with those changes comes uh, new players and, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of change in size as well up, up front for the St. Louis Blues. A couple more minutes with Darren Pang, friend of the show now, an NHL analyst with TNT for this coming season. So St. Louis was expected to move Tarasenko. That hasn't happened. Calgary and Vancouver were expected to do a lot. One team did, the other not so much. Vancouver made large changes. Calgary, they're still waiting, and it doesn't sound like any are coming right away what do you make what's your current view of what vancouver did and the outlook and same for the calgary flames well i thought last year and and i think with a lot of teams i think we got to keep in mind that i I really believe that it's been a bit of an aberration through no no fans and and what the players have had to go through um i was really impressed with with vancouver when they knocked off the blues i mean you know for me that that was a team that was an up-and-coming team and it was disappointing to see um, how it went after that uh, that that series ended um, and and going into the next year. So, um, I, you know, Calgary's Calgary brought on a you know a Kirk. I, I, you know, I know this is an odd thing to add, but I'm a big fan of Kirk Muller, and I thought that was an excellent move to bring Kirk Muller in as an associate coach with Daryl Sutter. 
And because I because I think the world of the way he can work those forwards, an underachieving group of forwards certainly uh, in Calgary uh, means that you've got to you've got to do something to get their ear. Um, if you can't move certain players, um, whether because of contract or maybe it's not the right deal, well then you've got to do something to enhance those players. And I think Kirk is going to be a real great addition to the Calgary Flames. But they seem to be a little bit flat. They don't seem to have that same jump they had two or three years ago. And it all starts with Johnny Hockey and, and the way he played. I thought he bounced back last year nicely. Um, Monaghan, obviously, he went through some issues health-wise that nobody really knew about. But, uh, but you know, they, 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 they certainly need a heck of a lot more uh, from those two if they're going to be a competitive team. But I, I, I like Vancouver. I like, listen, I, I like what they've got right there. I think it all started with the JT Miller trade. That's just me. I thought that was a, a great trade. And, um We've seen some of the younger players really get pushed to another level. So um, I'm excited to see Vancouver. I think there's an opening there in the Pacific Division, and one of those two teams has got to jump on it right away. You mentioned the coaching staff in Calgary. No one will confuse that atmosphere with the country club. But on the subject of country clubs, we have a listener question that I wanted to get out on. One of our avid listeners says, can you please, please, please ask Darren about the story when he and Wayne Gretzky were golfing and Wayne bet him that he could get home in two on a par five when golfing one day? You know, it's funny that you're asking those questions because my good friend Bill Hollowat, he's a, a, a Mira COO, and I, of course, use my Mira golf clubs. And uh, so I, I thought there might be a golf story along the way here. Um, yeah, we were, we were playing over at his, his, his uh, course in Sherwood at, in California, and it, he used to live on, a, on the uh, first par five. I think it was a fifth or sixth hole before he moved up the hill, I call it. And, uh, and he said that he said, he, he, he basically said, I bet you I can get home in, in, in two. And I'm looking at this hole and I'm like, there's not a chance in the world you can get home in two with that little slice fade that you hit all the time. And sure enough, he hits his first one right down the middle. And then he rips a six iron right into his backyard on the left. He says, see, I told you I got home in two. (laughs) Not bad. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. I like it. I like that story, Banger, and we like your stories all the time, buddy. We've had a lot of compliments coming into the inbox during the course of this interview. You shouldn't be surprised by that. We'll do it again soon. Congratulations on the new gig, and we'll talk as hockey season gets underway. That sounds great. Have a great season and look forward to it. Thank you. That is Darren Pang. Yeah, lots of compliments pouring in for Pang. Or holy jumping. We didn't get a holy jumping during the course of that <laughs> interview today, but I would love to see the photos. I quickly went to his timeline, Jamie, and, and maybe he's yeah. got it on his IG or something like that. I don't know if Panger has Instagram. I'm, I'm guessing he does, but I didn't get to see a picture of him trying on Shaq's shoes so or Shaq's suit. I want to see it, though. Please show me that. I have a feeling... I have a feeling Turner, knowing how they like to do things on social media, will make that happen at some point during the season, right? If he's in there, if he's in the green room that Shaq uses, they're going to find a way to make that comparison. I also love the detail of Charles Barkley addressing him as little guy when he he called him to to congratulate him. That's fantastic. Well, you heard me laugh during that part of the interview. He'd probably say the exact same thing to me. So, Panger, don't take that personally. and. Isn't that awesome, though, that they already seem to have that synergy? We always talk about the great greatest panel in sports, and it, it's yep. clearly that TNT basketball panel because of the trust they have, the fact they're willing to take shots at each other, they can laugh at themselves. It's awesome, and the way that that part of TNT welcomes in the hockey part of the operation sounds great. And Panger really also increased my excitement to see what Wayne Gretzky does on the panel, right? I mean, I think a lot – there's obvious 
an excitement when you have the greatest player of all time, the most accomplished, you know, certainly statistically a player of all time who's going to be doing this thing. There's a certain level of excitement, but I think there's also been some questions from hockey fans, right? Okay, how much is he really going to share? How much is he going to be willing to say? And just, you know, hearing what Darren Pang had to say about what he thinks Gretzky's style will be on the panel, I'm, I'm very excited to see how it goes. So am I. It should be a lot of fun. I agree with you there. Listeners bringing it today, we have another question for you coming up next. We'll continue to filter in the, hey, what's that franchise that just can't seem to find this position in sports that you want to talk about? we got another one for you. It's coming up next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. That's not what I woke up this morning and did, but it doesn't sound like a bad idea right now. Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd, that right there. That's a classic rock masterpiece, and if you're after more classic rock, you'll find the perfect mix in the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. From the 60s and 70s all the way to the 90s, listen to the Classic Rock Essentials playlist on Apple Music. It's more of a Friday vibe, but I gotcha. I gotcha. (laughs) Keep those texts coming in, 960-960-650-650. Okay, I'm not going to call it a dream scenario or the perfect scenario for Major League Baseball. That's a little bit too strong, Jamie. But I will say this, MLB is in pretty good shape when it comes to their playoff possibilities right now in both leagues. The dream scenario from Major League Baseball's perspective, take our rooting interests out of it for a second. Yeah. Yankees, Red Sox, one game to decide who goes on to the real playoffs or the longer version of the playoffs. Yep. That would be probably the dream scenario, although... I guess if you're talking dream scenario, Major League Baseball would have had one of those teams in first place to guarantee its place in the postseason beyond a wild card game. Right, but from this point on with what's happened so far in the season, the best outcome, the best realistic outcome for Major League Baseball is, yeah, Yankees, Red Sox in a one-game playoff against each other. However, if Toronto is a part of that wild card game, that's a very good scenario for Major League Baseball as well because what you have despite not getting one of those markets in Boston or New York, you've got one of the young, exciting, up-and-coming teams in the league right now, and they've got a lot of young star power that people can gravitate to. And you've got a pretty pretty similar situation shaping up when it comes to the National League right now in the wild card race. The Dodgers hold the top wild card spot right now. They're going to duke it out with the San Francisco Giants, see if they can win that division and not have to play in the one-game, win-or-move-on scenario. But right now you've got the Dodgers who would face the Cardinals, two historic franchises, two great baseball markets. That's a win if you're Major League Baseball. And if the Cardinals don't get in, the Reds may have something to say about this, but the team that's next in line may be the equivalent of the Jays in the National League, and that's the San Diego Padres. Right. So a lot of young talent there to look at. I mean, as you said, the Cardinals and the Dodgers, both kind of premier historic teams with massive, massive fan bases. Then, as you say, plus the Padres with that young, exciting talent that they have very similar to the Jays. So yeah, there's a lot of good options uh, on the table for Major League Baseball in both leagues. And look, maybe the Seattle Mariners get hot, hurt themselves over the last couple of days. I think most people look and say, well, they're going to come just short because that's what the Seattle Mariners do. The A's have fallen seemingly too far back, although anybody can get on a heater. Jays and Mariners, pardon me, the A's and Mariners are going to play each other a bunch here and they'll probably cancel each other out but who knows maybe there's a big swing in that series and one team is able to dominate the other and really get back into this race the playoffs are where you draw a bunch of casuals anyway playoff baseball i love it it's the only type of baseball my wife 
generally will watch. She puts up with me watching the Jays, and she feigns some interest, and she gets excited when there's a home run in the regular season. Come playoffs, she's invested. And I think a lot of other people feel the exact same way if they're a casual sports fan, Jamie. But a listener brought this up last week, and I think it's a really good topic, and I want to explore it with the rest of the audience here today. Because the Jays are in this race, and a bunch of our listeners in both markets are Jays fans, they're watching every game right now. And all those teams won yesterday. The Jays won, and it was a nice series win against Tampa. The Yankees came back to win against the Orioles, which isn't a surprise, but you thought maybe you'd get a little bit of help there. And the Red Sox went to extra innings. And then they pelted Seattle in that extra frame to get the job done. And so it's still that virtual tie in the American League wildcard race. But you're invested because you have an interest in the team. And a listener brought this up last week. What is the sport that you mention to normally if it were on your television, but if you have a rooting interest, it just goes up exponentially? Now, we know rooting interest will get you involved in anything. But we're talking about that gap where you would not pay that sport the time of day. You'd bypass it in a heartbeat on your television. But if you have a rooting interest, captivated, can't move, you're in. So what's the biggest jump, I suppose? Yeah, because I would say, you know, there's not a lot of sports that I would say I have zero interest in, right? But there are definitely sports where when you go from no rooting interest to having a rooting interest, the entertainment level, the excitement level jumps up significantly. I mean, baseball is near the top of the list for me. Now, I would say specifically regular season baseball is near the top of the list because I can sit down and watch any two teams in the postseason. It's that tense. It's that exciting. It's that enjoyable for me. But it's also a 162-game regular season, right? So outside of when I'm watching the Jays, I mean, I'm not tuning in for a lot of random, you know, NL Central games in May, in June, because you don't have that rooting interest. But when all of a sudden you do have the rooting interest in baseball, it makes it so much more exciting and enjoyable because every pitch matters, you know, every inning, every hit, all of it matters so much more. So baseball is near the top of this list for me. I agree, and I have baseball on that side of the ledger as well. The jump is pretty big, and we'll leave this at regular season right now because you're right, the playoffs are different. There's a lot of people, for example, Jamie, they won't stop on a college basketball game, but if you tell them it's March Madness, they're invested. They don't care. They don't have to know anything about the teams. They know it's that one game and move on or go home scenario. They're in. So you're right. We'll leave this as far as regular season goes. I think baseball is certainly there. The listener who brought it up last week, referenced tennis and it was about Leila Annie Fernandez and about a Canadian playing and saying look when I see a Canadian playing I'm in otherwise I'm not sure that I'm going to consume the average tennis match even if it isn't a Grand Slam event tennis is probably number one for me and it goes from you know like even look at the uh the Medvedev Djokovic final right at the U.S. Open okay I'll turn it on if I'm around and you know I'm kind of half paying attention I'm looking up at the big moments but it's not getting my heart rate up let's put it that way I'm paying attention but it's uh okay whatever it's kind of on in the background it's a very passive entertainment viewing experience for me when I was watching Leila Annie Fernandez matches, completely different, completely different. I'm up, I'm pacing around the living room, I'm clapping at the TV, I'm yelling at the TV in support. That tennis is number one for me easily in this one, right? And I think it's similar to baseball where when you're invested in the tennis match, all of a sudden every point, every fault, everything becomes so, so big. You feel like you're living and dying with every point basically. And it's, it's really just a completely different experience from watching it without a rooting interest. To me, that's the sport 
with the biggest gap between, okay, I'm just kind of casually watching this to all of a sudden you're cheering for someone and it feels like life or death every point, basically. Okay, what about soccer? Because I think soccer's in this conversation as well, and somebody has already brought that up. Someone said, hands down, the white caps. Certainly that's how MLS viewership seems to be. There are a lot of TFC fans or white caps fans that will not watch MLS unless their team is involved. You know, I think the funny thing with soccer is, and MLS, yes, I mean, I'm only going to watch an MLS game realistically if the Whitecaps are playing. But I've also watched a lot of soccer without any specific rooting interest in my life, right? Like whether it's the Premier League or the Champions League or, you know, the European Championships, World Cup, whatever it is. So I've kind of gotten used to watching without a rooting interest that I'm still able to very much enjoy it. I'm not like the number one soccer fan out there, but I enjoy the sport. I wouldn't necessarily have soccer in this conversation for me. Now, it's a different I, – I admit, obviously, when I'm watching these Canadian national team games and they're trying to qualify for the World Cup, yeah, obviously it's more entertaining than just watching you know, a random Champions League game. But I think because I have such a history of watching soccer without any rooting interest, I've kind of gotten used to it and I can still really enjoy it. Chuck in Vancouver says, interest level increase, women's soccer. For Chuck, we'll watch any match involving the Canadian team but have zero interest in games where they're not involved. I think soccer in general falls into that category for a yep. lot of people, but that's what we're asking you today, 960-960 or 650-650. Cam in Nanaimo, I believe, is the, in a vast minority. I will read you Cam's text, and I'll tell you why I think he's in the minority. For me, says Cam, it's the NFL. I couldn't care less about the regular season. Come playoff time, the snacks are out, and it's go time. I have football on the complete other side. That if I see a football game on, I'm watching. And yes, if your team's involved, there's there's an increase, but the floor for football is high. I will watch any football game at least for a bit. I don't. Tonight's a pretty good example. Yeah. I'm going to watch the Giants <laughs> and the Washington football team. I don't have a fantasy player on either team. I probably am not going to lay a bet on this game tonight. I have no rooting interest other than just I want to watch that game. The bar for football for me is high. I think most people feel that way about football. I think most people feel that way about hockey. The NFL is kind of the definition of the sport where rooting interest matters the least, right? And we've seen how incredibly capable they are of getting people to watch any NFL game just because it's the NFL. I'm right there with you. I was talking myself in to Washington and the Giants earlier today. Yeah, I will absolutely watch it. And again, I think for me specifically, like, yeah, I guess I'm a Seahawks fan, but it's very kind of passive. I'm not a diehard Seahawks fan by any stretch of the imagination. So most of my football watching is without a rooting interest. I, I have to be able to get excited about it without a rooting interest. Otherwise, I wouldn't watch all that much, right? But whatever it is about the NFL, they've succeeded in making every game feel like a big event that you have to sit down and watch at least part of it. It's It's been the most successful sport at that by far. I don't think we even have to ask about hockey. There are a lot better hockey games than others, but if Anaheim-Buffalo happens to be on TV, he'll probably stop and watch for a bit. Yep, He'll absolutely. probably stop and watch that. I think it's in the same column as football. I think golf's there too, Jamie. I don't think golf has this massive level jump, and maybe it's different when it was the Tiger days. I think if golf's on and you casually see it going by, you probably stop and watch for a little bit, but it doesn't increase exponentially based on who's in that final round. 
I completely agree. Golf was on my list in the same category as football, where golf is just, I know what I'm getting every tournament. It's going to be pretty relaxing, right? I'm not living and dying on every shot because I don't have a major rooting interest in any of the players. You know, it might be a little different if there's a Canadian involved in the final round. Obviously, I'm pulling for them, but it's still not this, you know, for whatever reason, I think following Adam Hadwin, let's say, in the final round would not be as intense an experience as following Leilani Fernandez at the U.S. Open for me, for whatever reason. I don't think it would give me that increase in kind of drama that I got out of tennis. So, yeah, golf, to me, I don't need a rooting interest. It's it's golf. It's going to be enjoyable. It's going to be fun. It's going to be relaxing pretty much no matter who is playing. Unsigned text comes in. Most sports in the Olympics, but when Canadians are in it, I'm all in. I think the Olympics certainly falls into that category. I think that's how a lot of people watch the Olympics. Yes, very much so, right? You're you're going to tune in for, you know, a lot of the more obscure events. If there's a Canadian expected to do well, if there's a Canadian expected to, you know, uh, challenge for the podium, which when normally you would not even think about turning on that sport. Okay, I'm going to throw one your way. I think I know how you're going to answer, but I found it the most difficult one to assign. The NBA. No, see, I, I am enough of an NBA fan that I don't need a rooting interest. And again, that's a sport where I don't have a favorite team, right? Like, I'm not a Raptors fan. I was a massive Grizzlies fan, obviously, until they left Vancouver. So I don't have a favorite team. I just like watching basketball. Now, it makes a big difference, obviously, the stakes of the game. Like, I get more into po- postseason playoff NBA basketball than I do in the regular season. Or if there's two great teams matched up, the matchup plays a role. But I don't need a rooting interest in it to get invested. The thing about the NBA, and I would file it there with you as well, the thing about the NBA is it's the most assured return on your viewing because whether the game's close, whether it's a little bit out of hand, whether you even know the rosters, you're going to see something awesome athletically during your viewing experience. You don't have to watch the whole game. Like You will get a highlight out of that game, and there's other sports that can't guarantee that. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. And again, I just like basketball enough that it's it's easy for me to get invested in pretty much any game. And obviously, as I said, the matchup plays a big role. Are there star players? That sort of thing. There's guys you want to watch more than others, teams you want to watch more than others. But I find it pretty easy to get invested in NBA games. Um, Al from Dryden texted in with a uh, dissenting opinion on golf. He says, golf is a big one for me when Corey Connors or Mackenzie Hughes, a couple of Canadians, are even close to being in the hunt on a Saturday or a Sunday, I get way more into it. So there's somebody on the other side of the debate for golf. Fair enough. And my rooting interest lies very similarly to yours, Al. I will obviously stump for the Canadians, and I love seeing the Canadian coverage, but golf's one that I find myself stopping on no matter what. Kind of like curling. You'll watch five minutes of curling, even if you don't know who's playing or if you care that much about I'll watch more than five minutes of curling, Scotty. I, I love watching curling on TV, unironically. It is a, I think it's a great TV sport. Good but I know, I'm, from, you know I, I'm alone on that to a certain degree. Alan, the realtor, this is good. How much do you gents think this debate has to do with format? What if there were only 18 hockey games a season? I feel that the NFL draws us in so much because they've done so well with providing the spectacle, just like Grand Slams on tennis and championships in golf. There's so much that football has, right? And that's part of it, Alan. I agree with you. The scarcity of games relative to other sports, every single one matters a little bit less this season because there's 17 games. I do think there's people, different topic maybe, and we can get into it a little bit later in the show possibly, Jay. I do think there's people that should be overreacting less simply because 
not that week one is a preseason game, but there's more room for leeway this year. Yeah, a little bit, for sure. And But Allen makes a really good point. And you just look at this Thursday night game, right, between Washington and the Giants. If it was one of three games happening on a schedule, like we see with hockey games or NBA games, right, where there's, you know, you very rarely have one game that gets the spotlight all to itself. If it was dealing with other NFL games, no one would be talking about this game, right? But because they have staked out their position, okay, Thursday night football, we're going to hype it up. Our partners are going to hype it up. No matter what the matchup is, we're going to act like this is a massive deal. It has the spotlight all to itself. He's right. It makes it a spectacle. It makes it feel like a big deal, and it gets people more interested in watching, no matter who the teams are. Keep those texts coming in, 960-960 or 650-650. Let's get to it, what they're saying. The Thursday nighter, you might have to sell a little bit, but it's a standalone game. So as I mentioned earlier, people are going to watch. It's not going to be record numbers tonight for New York and Washington, but people will still tune in. You're not going to need much of a sell for the Sunday night game. It's the home opener for the Baltimore Ravens, and it's the Kansas City Chiefs coming to town. The quarterbacks are obviously going to be in the spotlight, and one of them coming off a tough Monday night loss in Vegas. Lamar Jackson says, well, it's not about the pivots. It's not about, you know, me and Mahomes, not to me, you know, probably to everyone else, but, you know, it's the Ravens versus Kansas City Chiefs. Um, they did beat us, you know, three times or whatever, but that's in the past. We, we you know, we got a better opportunity this time to come around and we, we take the advantage and win, win in our home stadium. Um, but I'm not dwelling on those losses. You know, we, we come in Sunday night and we're going to play. Technically, he's right, but that won't matter. The sell for the game is Lamar Jackson versus Patrick Mahomes. It's yeah. Lamar Jackson has never beaten Patrick Mahomes in the Kansas City Chiefs. That's what comes with this position. Yes, and that's what comes with a matchup of two former MVPs, right? And uh, among the most high-profile and talented players at their position, yeah, of course the storyline is going to be Mahomes versus Lamar Jackson. A lot more to it than that, no question about it. But, yeah, you're going to get the hype. You're the quarterback. That's how it goes. That's exactly how it goes. I already saw the stories yesterday. I saw the stats coming out about his completion percentage versus Kansas City versus every other game he's played in the league, about what he's done, touchdown. It's That's what it's going to be. And when you are high profile and when you're an MVP and when those who want to criticize you, in Lamar Jackson's case, continue to criticize you for not being over the, able to get over in the biggest of games and a big game arrives, Yes, that's going to be the focus, but he like technically he's right. It's not just yes. Lamar Jackson. He's going to need a little help out there. Yeah, there will be other people out there on the field with them competing, trying to get it done. Um, but, you know, he's also going to need some help from his offensive line, which is not looking to be in great shape going into that one. Did you see that? Did you see that? That's yeah, tough. they're going to be. Yeah, not great. Ronnie Stanley not going to play this week, so they're going to have somebody different at right tackle and – Chris Jones, I don't know if you watched that Cleveland Chiefs game on the weekend, but Chris Jones decided to turn it up in the fourth quarter, and it was a bit of a nightmare for Cleveland's offensive line when he got going. Yeah, and Cleveland, I mean, expected to have one of the best offensive lines in the NFL, right? I know they're dealing with a couple injuries as well, but he did that to Cleveland. We saw how Baltimore's unit looked on uh, on the Monday nighter against mm. against the Raiders, so that's uh, that could be a tough test for them going up against Kansas City. R.J. Barrett, part of Canadians in the NBA and that Canadian contingent were expected to bring this country back to the Olympics the next time around when the summer games get going again in 2024. They didn't get it done in Victoria, and you and I were pretty critical, not for the effort, not for the try of those like R.J. Barrett who turned up, 
But at some point, there's a bottom line, and Canada hasn't been able to deliver on that bottom line for quite some time. R.J. Barrett spoke this morning on the Fan 590 about what that loss meant to him and to his teammates. I, I really think that, I really believe that loss, uh, we shouldn't have lost that game, but I, I really believe that that loss kind of woke us up um, a little bit and also showing everyone that, you know, we're right there. We're very close. Um, we 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 have a good coach. We have a good staff. We we have all the players. We have everything. You know, we just need to come together, gel together, and and we'll be we'll be very good in, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Now we need to talk about being close to the better teams on the planet, not close yeah. to those who are qualifying for the Olympics in a last chance tournament. Yeah, being close to the Czech Republic, full credit to them for what they did, for how they came together and when were able to make the Olympics. But being close to the Czech Republic is not the goal. That's not the bar that Canada should be aiming to clear here. No, and there's a comparison that you and I have made many times, and it's easy. You can see the parallel nature of the two between the Canadian men's basketball team and the Canadian men's soccer team and coming into these quote-unquote golden ages for both and with the Canadian men's soccer team okay they better show well in CONCACAF qualifying so far it's gone pretty well a little bit slow start but as those three games built you saw Canada get better Maxime Cropo he was not the goaltender of record for any of those matches but he is one of the goalkeepers on that roster for Team Canada he was on in Vancouver this morning and had this to say about the depth of Canadian soccer Correct. It's been uh, we have a young group, talented group with a uh, few vets that uh, that have been around for a long time. But the <laughs> the depth chart is uh, is a big problem for a head coach, which is uh, great. You know, uh, the more the more difficult it is to to pick a starting eleven, the best it is for our country. And uh, right now, it's been it's been a pleasure to to share the pitch with uh, with all these guys. You know, Joe. Uh, we have uh, five guys in the Champions League that played yesterday mm-hmm. uh, in yesterday's fixtures. So honestly, uh, it's uh, it's really great to see uh, our depth chart um, evolve and have a player poll of like 60 players of quality that, that can do the job. And we've talked about this with men's basketball as well, Jamie. It used to be, okay, can we get the three to five guys who are playing in the NBA to commit. Now we can get all NBA players in theory. And in fact, if all the Canadian NBA players show up, some of them are going to get cut. And that's what he's talking about with our national team on the men's soccer side as well. Hey, you might be playing in champions league. You might be playing for a pretty big club or doing big things in your league. Doesn't mean you're necessarily going to start for team Canada right now. Yeah. And unfortunately on the NBA side, it is still more theoretical, right? Because of injuries and contract status and all of that, you know, we do still see a lot of NBA players not show up. And so they have to dip into guys playing in Europe who are still very talented, but it's not the kind of dream scenario of where we're cutting NBA players, but the dream scenario kind of has turned out in Canadian soccer. They have so many exciting players that, you know, you probably have room for all of them on the squad, but even in the to fit all of them on the bench, let alone in the starting 11, can be difficult. Yes, it can. Jamie, someone talking about your curling shout and me saying, hey, you're going to stop on curling as much as you don't think about it on the everyday. You're going to stop on curling when it's on television. This texter says, F, you're not alone. Curling gets my heart pumping. Those guys are wizards on the ice with what they can do. <laughs> I love to hear it. I'm a, I am a, a massive, massive curling appreciator. I love curling, okay? I'm not going to say, like, I have time to watch every bonch spiel from beginning to end, but I love my curling, so I'm happy to get some support there. 
somewhere out there, Devin Haru's ears are yes. burning, and he's saying, get me back on the show. Let's talk some rock. Let's go. Let's go. Going to do, we'll do a regular curling segment with Devin this year. I'm telling you. There, let's make it happen, man. Let's make it happen. He's not joining us today. We're going to head to New York next. Giants, a lot of things to talk about with this team that will look for its first win of the season against Washington tonight. We'll head there next. Talk with Jordan Raynon of ESPN right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. We raised that listener-inspired topic of the sports that take the biggest leap when you have a rooting interest and where you're at on certain sports and people have debated which ones work for them, which ones don't. This text comes in, Jamie. Scott Rento and Jamie Dodd. We're going to talk some NFL football here in just a minute. The NBA is a weird one for me, says this unsigned texter. I don't have a favorite team, but I have players that I tune in to watch. I won't have a favorite team until Seattle or Vancouver get their teams back. And that is why the National Basketball Association markets its stars, Jamie, because you can't always guarantee that a team is going to be good, but there are players on virtually every team in the league that are worth watching. And I think there's a lot of people in the same boat as that texter, right? Who, especially here in Canada, you know, if you're not a Raptors fan, there's not a natural rooting interest for you necessarily, unless you happen to grow up as, you know, a Bulls fan or something like that, a Lakers fan. But if you don't have that, yeah, you're going to gravitate towards the star players in the NBA. I've certainly, I mean, I, I've rooted for LeBron when he's been uh, in the NBA finals in the past. And, you know, that's it. It's it's easier to do in the NBA because the star players are so consistently successful, right? You have a very good idea that wherever Kevin Durant goes, wherever Steph Curry goes, wherever LeBron James go, those teams are going to be really good and they're going to play in big games. Yes, and that is part of why the NFL has the perfect confluence. We had Allen say, well, what about the fact that they only play 17 games a season? Yep, that helps because every game is a little bit bigger. And also, people are passionate about their teams. But fantasy football, it does the marketing of the stars in a much different way than the NBA. I don't happen to have anybody playing in fantasy tonight, Jamie, but I know there's a bunch of people out there listening right now that do. They've got Terry McLaurin tonight, or they've got Saquon Barkley wondering whether they should start him tonight. And it's the one sport that is so, it is capitalized so much more than any other in the fantasy world. Yes, fantasy. And I mean, let's be honest, gambling as well. And those two have kind of started to merge even to a little bit, right? But, same thing. Yeah, fa- it the, yeah, it exactly. is the same it's, thing. We can we can classify yeah. it differently, but it's the exact same thing. It's the same thing. And it's it, it it has its roots in the same element, right? You're not root you're not watching because you're cheering for one team or the other, even to see how one player does because you like that player, like in the NBA. I mean, you're watching to see because of how it potentially affects your pocketbook. I don't know how many people will be starting Daniel Jones tonight. I knew the, I know the New York Giants will be doing that. Jordan Ron on uh, covers the New York Giants, I should say, pardon me, for ESPN, and he joins us today in advance of the Thursday nighter between the G-Men and the Washington football team. Jordan, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Good. What's going on? Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I don't know if I would ride Daniel Jones too hard. It's, uh, points could be hard to come by tonight. I, 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 that's that's what I'm thinking here. It's a really good defense. It's one that limited Justin Herbert and the Chargers to just 20 points last week. And we saw a fairly dismal performance offensively for the Giants, who played against another tough defense in Denver last week. As we head into this game with the New York Giants fan base, what is the biggest question people are asking right now? Can they score points? I mean, that's that's really where we're at. You know, they... They scored 17 and a half points last, per game last year. 
that was 31st in the NFL. And the only reason they weren't last was because the Jets under Adam Gase were just did it pathetic that they kind of ran away with it. But the Giants were like a point and a half almost worse than any other team. And now what we've seen so far is kind of an extension of what we saw last year because the reality is Saquon Barkley's coming back from a major knee injury, right? It's going to take him a little while to get up to being even close to the level that he was as a rookie. Kenny Galladay missed a month, right? Their big free agent signing, their number one receiver. He missed a month. He's just been back a few weeks now. I don't think he has this full explosion. And Kadarius Tony, their first-round pick, I mean, here's a guy who essentially didn't practice from the, much from the day he was drafted until the start of this month. So how much can they really incorporate him? Well, you saw that in the opener when he played two snaps until, like, the final drive or two, and he, we squeezed in there for a few more. So, you know, and now, you like you mentioned, Denver, really good defense. Washington, really good defense. These are not ideal matchups for an offense that, I mean, and even to mention, the weak point of the entire roster is probably the offensive line. So, it, you know, whether they can score enough points to win a game against a quality defense like Washington is definitely – I think with the fan base saying it, and really they're all over Jason Garrett. I mean, they want they want Jason Garrett's head on a stick right now. And unless uh, there's evidence that pops up otherwise that this offense can be creative and schematically help out the quarterback and everyone else around them, I think that's where the Giants fan base is just – I mean, they're more demoralized than I've ever seen them in since I've been covering a team in eight years. They really – they're in a total show-me-something mode, uh, which for this organization, that's saying something because it's always been like, well, you know, they did it in 07 when they started 0-2 and won the Super Bowl. And, you know, they have a, you know, they have a deep, rich history. But, you know what, all that you know, goodwill is kind of worn off right now. I've got a couple of friends who are Giants fans, and their main complaint about the offense right now is that, hey, even if Saquon Barkley is healthy under Jason Garrett, they're not going to run a scheme that truly benefits him anyway. But he's Saquon yeah. Barkley, and you've invested all of this in him. You've also got Daniel Jones. You're trying to figure out what he is. Jordan, what should be the identity of the New York Giants offense based on the parts they actually have? It should be spread it out, get these guys in open space right now, right? Because look at the – now, Evan Ingram, he's not playing. Saquon, he's not 100%. But when you have these guys, uh, you you have Kadarius, Tony, they invested a lot in playmakers. They need to spread teams out, in my opinion, and find ways to get these guys in open space and let them make plays. Get Daniel Jones outside the pocket and let him work outside the pocket and throw. He's too athletic for them not to have him working outside the pocket on a regular basis. I, I looked it up a couple weeks ago, and passing yards outside the pocket last year, right? Now, Grant, and now think of this for a second. Daniel Jones has a bad offensive line. No one's going to argue that. So he's on the move and needs to move a lot. Well, the only quarterbacks that had fewer yards passing outside the pocket last year were Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Phillip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, I mean, you see the common thread? Those guys are like 100 years old, you know? I mean, Daniel Jones is 24 and can run. The other two were uh, Teddy Bridgewater, who post-surgery is not very mobile and doesn't run much anymore. And uh, the other guy was Cam Newton, which was kind of surprising. But 
You know, Daniel Jones shouldn't be in a category with those guys when we're talking about making plays outside the pocket because think about the top quarterbacks in the NFL these days. Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen, uh, all these guys. What do they do? They make a ton of plays, you know, not necessarily using their legs to run, but using their legs to move and then work and use their legs to get guys open and make plays. And that needs to be a part of this Giants offense way more if they're going to be successful with Daniel Jones and the weapons that they have. Well, and I want to focus on Daniel Jones a little bit more, Jordan. You've got a really great piece in depth up on ESPN.com right now about kind of the relationship between Daniel Jones and the Giants and and how much faith they have in him. I'd encourage our readers to go check it out. But, I mean, what is it about Daniel Jones that the Giants see that gives them so much confidence he can still be their long-term number one quarterback? Yeah, think of it from their perspective, right? You have this guy who physically is very talented. I mean, he can make any throw. He's big. He's strong. He can run. He's athletic, right? He has a first-class work ethic. I mean, everybody says that about him. This guy is going to work. He's likable. Everybody likes him. He works his butt off. He's super smart. So you have all these skills, right? That's pretty much everything you want from a quarterback. So when they look at it, they see him at practice every day. They see all the things he could bring to the table. They're like, we, there's no way we can see this, all these things, and not think, put him in the right situation that it's going to work, that he's not going to be a high-end quarterback. I mean, I said to Sterling Shepard, I said, you know, what is it? And he said, you're there every day. You see it, right? I'm like, well, no one wants to hear what I have to say, Sterling. I mean, what, what do you have to say? And he says, and that's when he said to me, look, if you so basically sitting here every day and watching it, if you can't see it, you're blind, right? And that was the quote that he gave me, and I was like, all right, you know, that kind of explains to me the perspective that they have. Now, the one thing I, I would say is that it's when panic sets in in the middle of the field that, you know, that, that it's kind of lost. He's got to do better in that regard. Like, you can't – the turnovers, they, he cut him down last year, which was a – which was a, which showed that he made progress, right? Because the rookie year he fumbled, lost lost eleven fumbles, in twelve starts, right? Which is a crazy number. Last year, he lost six fumbles in fourteen starts. So that's obviously significant gains, right? I mean, there's improvement that you can see there. Jordan's phone. My cause because. Oh, we've got you back, Jordan. Sorry, we lost you for a second. Continue, continue that answer about okay. Daniel Jones, please. I, I, I said in week. I worked on that story all summer, and in week one, he makes that foolish fumble. Didn't help. Didn't help the story or the narrative <laughs> at all. But you can see why they, the Giants players and the front office and the coaches, they see everything at practice and they see the skills that he has, and they're like, "How could this not work? If it doesn't work, it's someone else's fault. It's not his fault." So the players, the coaches, you know, the front office, they all have this confidence and they're all betting on Daniel Jones to work out. What happens if he doesn't show significant growth for them this season? Uh, Those guys you just mentioned, they're going to be without jobs at some point. I mean, let's be honest, right? Uh, Dave Gettleman's fate rests on the success of Daniel Jones. Joe Judge's fate ultimately probably rests on the success of, like if Daniel Jones 
this doesn't pan out and ends up being a flop, I mean, they're going to be bad this year. Uh, the likelihood they're good next year is probably slim. So Joe Judge is kind of attached to him. Dave Gettleman is kind of attached to him. Uh, even, like, Saquon Barkley is kind of attached to him because, remember, he has a contract situation that needs to be ironed out here. You're really going to sign a running back to a huge long-term deal if you're starting over and you need a new quarterback. So there's a lot at stake with Daniel Jones. The Giants are in terrible shape if Daniel Jones doesn't pan out. I mean, really bad because it's not even like this team is, you know, set up good long-term with a lot of money and a lot of flexibility. They might have some, you know, two first-round picks next year, a bunch of draft picks, but financially they're going to be pressed against the cap next year. So to have to rebuild when you're already up against the cap would be a I mean, Giants fans might as well put another three years on the on the wait list of uh, when we could see our team be a winner again. And this is a fan base. Don't forget, they've had one winning season now in eight years. They're they're one. They've been one of the worst organizations in football over an eight year stretch. Jordan Ronan of ESPN covers the New York Giants. He joins us this morning on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Is the fear? with Daniel Jones greater that he just isn't the guy they thought they drafted or that they don't even have the right people to evaluate whether he's that guy? Ah, that's a good one. I almost think it's more something else. They don't have the, still don't have the right people around the guy like to really give him – like they have all these weapons now, but, I mean, the argument can be made that the Giants' offensive line is – you know, bottom five in the league. I mean, that's a pretty easy argument to be made. And how can anybody really realistically think that we can get a full evaluation of the guy, a true, honest evaluation, if I don't say this with, like, much doubt? Like, they probably have the worst tackle, you know, pass-blocking tackle combo in the NFL. I mean, it's kind of hard for him to be successful given that So. Yes, and the talent valuation part is is definitely a question they face. I mean, you go look at Dave Gettleman's three drafts right now, and you can have a, you'll have a hard time saying this guy, any of the guys he drafted, is a slam dunk, big time hit as a draft pick. I mean, everyone still has questions. The only one who I think you could really say, well, that was a really good draft pick, was Darius Slayton because he was in the fifth round. And it was like a slam, you know, he's like a, a quality starting caliber player in the league. And that's really good for a fifth rounder. But even guys like Saquon and Daniel Jones, and you name it, go up and down the list. You can pick apart every one of these picks right now and be like, is that really the, the guy? You know, is this guy really worth where he was drafted? So the, the talent evaluation part is that if you don't have confidence in it, I mean, I, I can't blame you. Like the giant, nobody can sit there and be like, "No, you're wrong." Look at look what he's done. Like, no, there's questions, big time questions. So as we saw last year, with it coming down to the final week of the season with the Giants, this is a bad division that they exist in, in part because of them. But we'll leave that for a second. What qualifies as success in another year where the NFC East doesn't look terribly good? I think being competitive. Uh, you know, being in that eight, nine win range mark would be a step forward for this organization. And I honestly think they can do that. I know everyone watched week one and they were demoralized and week two might not be much prettier because they're facing another top defense and it's not ideal, but right. And offensive line, that's not very 
you know, took his first tackle since coming back from a knee injury last week, and now they're asking him to play against not back to his full self yet. I mean, you watch him run at practice, you're like, you don't see that explosiveness. You knew they were going to struggle coming into the season. I mean, these are Denver's defense is really good. Washington's defense is really good. You could make the argument that those are, you know, two of the best defenses in the league, two of the five best defenses in the league, definitely. So you knew they were going to struggle. If they struggle next week, week 10 days rest against Atlanta, yeah, then, um, then I say panic big time. They got major problems here. But I think in the meantime, if they can sneak out this win against a backup quarterback, essentially, and Taylor Heineke, and then they have Atlanta at home next week, all of a sudden, you're looking at the Giants being in this decent shape, be a competitive team, compete for the division. Now, I don't know. Somebody will probably, you know, have a good season, put it together, win 10, 11 games. If that's just how the NFL works, the schedule works out for some team. They end up playing five backup quarterbacks. Like, that's how it works. So, you know, but if, as long as the Giants are competitive, I think they can look at this season as a success. Compete for the playoffs. Just be in that race, even if it's, you know, on the fringe. Jordan, as you said, and just looking a little specifically at tonight's game, you know, the pass blocking at the tackle position, not a strength for the New York Giants. And they happen to be going up against one of the premier pass rushers in the NFL in Chase Young tonight. Is Could that be the key matchup of this game? Is Can the Giants find any way to slow down Chase Young? Yeah, I mean, obviously, forget Chase Young. I mean, you, you add Montez Sweat in there, too, because whoever's lined up and wherever they're lined up, it's basically a mismatch if the Giants have to just drop back and pass. So the only answer for the Giants, because they trust me, they know this. They're going to help those guys as much as humanly possible. They know what they're in for. Joe Judge uh, raved about Chase Young, about how he's this rare guy, you know, sort of, I'm mean, putting, not the word he used, but he's basically a, a unicorn. And like, and like, like he says, is when you don't need your personnel department to be able to find guys like, guys like Chase Young, those guys find themselves. Like Nobody needs you to tell them that a guy like Chase Young and Von Miller last week are good players. Like Everybody just looks at those guys and know that they're great players. So the Giants one-on-one won't be able to block him. They won't be even able to block Montez Sweat if they're stuck one-on-one blocking him the whole game. The only way the Giants are able to slow them down is if they run the ball. They're going to try and run the ball and do it a lot. I expect a high percentage of runs for the Giants in this game. And seeing that as a way of, okay, that's the only way we can handle these two guys and we can be effective offensively consistently is if we put a focus on running the football. Hey, Jordan, we've asked you a lot about the Giants' offense and what they look like on that side of the ball. What do you expect to see on the defensive side of things for the Giants this year? Yeah, I expect to see better than they were in the opener. They actually played poorly in the opener. You could say that that was probably the most disappointing part of the opener for the Giants is that their defense did not play very well. I mean, they were letting up allowing – third downs and fourth downs like it was nothing I believe the total at one was uh, Denver was 7 of 16 on third and fourth downs I mean that's like a 65% clip if you're going to let teams convert 65% on third and fourth down 
you are not going to win in the NFL. So the Giants need to do a better job of that tonight, and they're not. They're they're they should be able to do it against a quarterback who's, you know, a backup quarterback in this league. He started. He started two games. He started a game, I believe, at once upon a time in Carolina, in addition to the playoff game last year. So the goal for this defense is to, and this is what they do well. Patrick Graham was a stud last year as a defensive coordinator. Show a lot of looks, uh, confuse the young quarterback, make him make mistakes, make him not know what he's seeing or where the pressure is coming from, because that's really what the Giants' defense is built on. They don't have, they're built the opposite of Washington, right? They don't have those natural edge rushers. They have the better secondary. And so to create pressure, they bring it from a lot of different places, and they, and they, and they try and confuse the quarterback. And I think that's the goal tonight. And this should be a pretty good defense. They were a top-ten defense last year. And I can easily sit here and tell you, personnel-wise, they're better than they were last year. Jordan, thank you very much for taking some time on a game day. If it's at all humanly possible, enjoy the game tonight. Oh, I will. I will. Look, there's worse things to do, man. I'm spending my Thursday night watching NFL football. Now, I've gotten used to Giants offenses sputtering and not scoring points, so I'm almost immune <laughs> to that at this point, guys. You, gotta, you have to understand that. Eight years wears you down. I'm leaving. Remember Bill Murray, Groundhog's Day? Oh, yeah. I'm leaving that, baby. That's my life. <laughs> I am living Groundhog's Day. Well, we appreciate you sharing some of it with us here today. Thanks, Jordan. You got it, guys. Enjoy. That is Jordan Ronan of ESPN in New York. More demoralized right now than he's ever seen in his eight years covering the team in the Big Apple. Yeah, that's um, that's not that surprising. Just when you think about you know the injury situation with Saquon Barkley, who looked so dynamic a couple years ago. Jason Garrett, I think, is a very easy target as your offensive coordinator, right, given how things ended for him in Dallas and then the frustration with Daniel Jones and you know I mentioned the the big piece that uh, Jordan has up right now at ESPN.com talking about the incredible confidence that the Giants organization has in Daniel Jones and I was reading it and you know they're talking about his work ethic and all that and that's great and I'm sure he is a really hard worker but there's got to be results right and we're in an era where young quarterbacks can come into the NFL and have results very very quickly I know Daniel Jones is only going into his third season here, but it at a certain point, I mean, there's got to be real, legitimate, tangible results on the field or all of that work ethic's not going to matter much. Very polarizing takes right now on Daniel Jones and where he's at and where he's going to go. We'll dive back into that conversation a little bit later, Jamie, because that city has had its fill on both sides of it with their teams in the last few years here. Sam Darnold's the most recent example. Yeah. What does he turn into in Carolina? Was it the environment? Was it him? We'll wait and see. I want to get into that conversation a little later, but we got to make way for another one. Sean Shapiro, he will join us next right here. Covers the National Hockey League with the Athletic, formerly covered the Dallas Stars in very close detail. We'll talk some puck next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Jock.